Dr. Zhivago, fact versus fiction. Hello and welcome back to Cutmel's in Conversation. I'm your host, Lara Elder, and today we're going to be focusing on copyright. Specifically, we'll be talking about the recent ruling involving Anna Pasternak, who is the great-niece of Dr. Zhivago author Boris Pasternak, and her claim for copyright infringement in the High Court of England and Wales. Just a bit of a, a disclaimer before we get into this, there are going to be, I'm afraid, a lot of Laras in this episode, myself included. If any of you listening are a fan of the book, Dr. Zhivago, or indeed, as my parents clearly were back in the day, of the classic 1965 movie starring Omar Sharif and Julie Christie, then you'll know that Lara is, of course, one of the main characters in Dr. Zhivago. Lara also happens to be the name of the US writer against whom Anna Pasternak made the infringement claim in this case. She's called Lara Prescott. And the final Lara is in the title of Pasternak, this is Anna Pasternak now, the great niece of Boris Pasternak, in her own book, which she claimed, as part of this case, had sections lifted from it. So four Laras. What's the word for a plural of Laras? <laughs> Alid has already made his appearance. That is a very good question to start us off. My guests today will be Alid Richards-Jones and Simon Kivikotari, who are both barristers. Unfortunately, neither of them called Lara, so we're not adding any more Laras at this stage. Alid is a senior associate in our dispute resolution group here at Cartmel's, and he was part of the Cartmel's team which represented the defendant in this case. That's Lara Prescott. And Simon is a senior associate in our transactions team and recently wrote an excellent article which provides some insight into the details of the case. So welcome to you both. Alid, maybe you can start by giving us just a little bit of background to the case. I mean, who is Anna Pasternak and what was her claim? Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Lara. As you've mentioned, Anna Pasternak is the great niece of Boris Pasternak, who is the author of Dr. Shabago. And some years ago, Anna Pasternak wrote a biography of a woman called Olga Ivanskaya. And Olga was a literary agent and mistress of Boris Pasternak and was said to be the inspiration for the character of Lara in Dr. Shivago. So Anna Pasternak published her biography of Olga, which was called Lara, the untold love story that inspired Dr. Shivago. Later, Lara Prescott published her first novel called The Secrets We Kept. And The Secrets We Kept is a best-selling thriller. It's got two narrative strands. The first narrative strand is about the relationship between Boris and Olga and how Dr. Shivago was written. And the second narrative strand takes place simultaneously in time in the US and the CIA. And it's about the lives of the secretarial pool and also the female spies in the CIA who assisted in publishing Dr. Zhivago all over the world as part of the US's anti-communism tactics at the time. That all sounds very intriguing. Simon, I think you've written a bit more about that in your article, haven't you? And in fact, the stir that Boris Pasternak's book caused in the first instance, maybe actually it would be helpful if you give us a bit of background on that now before we launch into the copyright discussion. Absolutely. And great to be on the podcast with the both of you. 
the big furore about Dr. Zhivago when it was published. We were in the middle of the Cold War at the time. It's the 1950s, at the time when the CIA had loads and loads of sometimes madcap plots, really, to mess things up into communist countries, including exploding cigars sent to Fidel Castro, that sort of thing. But one of the pretty much better plans and much more sophisticated ones was in involving Dr. Zhivago and basically... The book was quite critical of the Soviet regime. In part, it was never going to be favorably accepted, and it wasn't published there. It was actually banned. So the CIA had this wonderful idea of basically smuggling it out, and that was done via an, an Italian publisher, and then publishing it in English for the rest of the world and lots of other languages, and in Russian too, and smuggling the Russian version back into the Soviet Union so people could find out what their regime was really like. And that was a massive furore at the time, and Boris Pasternak did win the Nobel Prize, but the Soviet regime made him give it up. So it was really on the world stage for quite a few years. And still is now, it would seem, by proxy, as it were, by Boris Pasternak's great-niece writing this, well, from what you're describing, historical account, Alid. And then what claim did she make exactly against Lara Prescott? So it was, in legal terms, a very interesting claim. So what Anna Pasternak alleged was that Lara Prescott had appropriated what she termed the structure and arrangement in her work, Lara, the Untold Love Story. Now, typically in copyright, what the allegation is that somebody has copied a work either directly verbatim or they've copied it with a few changes, so de seriatim. Anna Pasternak didn't advance that case here. What she said was that in her book, she had brought together certain facts in a certain sequence. And it was, in fact, that sequence of facts, the structure and arrangement of those facts, which Lara had copied, and that amounted to infringement. There was an important reason why Anna Pasternak couldn't run a, if you like, a traditional copying claim, which was because when she brought her claim, Lara Prescott and her team undertook an analysis of Anna Pasternak's book. And what they found, and the judgment records this, was that Anna Pasternak had written her book by copying very extensive passages from previous authors. So there were historical texts that Anna Pasternak had consulted. And much of her book comprised basically a tapestry of large chunks of previous works stitched together with connecting sentences. And for that reason, of course, Anna couldn't have any copyright in those portions, textually, that she had copied. So she fell back on the claim that, well, her copyright derived from the fact that she had collected these portions, and she was the first person to present them in a compendious volume. An analogy that her legal team drew was that it was like an anthology of poems, could I just say, is the reason for the way in which this claim is brought, due to the very different types of books that they are, really, Anna Pasternak's book, Lara, The Untold Love Story, was very much a work of non-fiction, was basically a biographical non-fiction work, whereas Lara Prescott's book, The Secrets We Kept, is a page-turning in a feminist spy thriller, in a way, involving secretaries and everything. It's, as you say, Simon, yes, that sort of page-turner novel is probably what many of our listeners who don't know a lot about copyright, or even if they do, what they have in mind when they think about a copyright work is that it's a novel, it's a poem, it's a piece of music, it's something creative, and I'm doing air commas, whereas a historical, obviously there's a lot of work that goes into 
writing a biography or something historical, but essentially, as you say, Alad, it's just, it is an arrangement of facts, isn't it? Which copyright can't subsist in the facts themselves. And you've only got one history, haven't you, really? Obviously, in the Soviet regime, there are many versions of history and all of that sort of stuff. But in this particular situation, there's one story, isn't there? That's precisely right. It's an age-old adage in copyright law that copyright protects the expression of facts, but it doesn't protect the facts themselves. And that's very important because what copyright is trying to protect is the author's creativity. If we can put it like that, it's not trying to monopolise facts for just one person. And that really was the problem in this case. It's very rare in English copyright litigation to see a successful claim from a historical author brought against a fiction author, because the works are fundamentally different. And this case in particular, and again, the judgment records this at various stages, but what Ada Pasternak was really aggrieved at was that she felt that she had some property in the story of Boris and Olga, that it was essentially a legacy and a heritage of hers, her family's. And in fact, she said at trial, and it's recorded in the judgment, that she thought the act of writing a novel about this was identity theft. Now, we can take a different view on that, but whatever the merits of that, that's not a claim that copyright law can sustain. Copyright law is concerned with something very different to one's family heritage or identity. There's many aspects of this case that make it particularly unusual and if copyright judgments are your thing, this one's a page turner. But Simon, there are some other aspects of the case which you've written about in your article, I know, which make it particularly unusual from a legal case. Could you talk to us about that a bit? One of the big ones that we've just touched on was the fact that the novels are ever so different. So it makes it very hard in the first place. And one of the other biggest and very surprising aspects of this case was that the claimant had never read the book that she's saying infringed her book. Oh, goodness. Anna Pasternak said, no, I've never read so that the secrets we kept. And I think it goes back to Alan's point where it was basically a very emotive claim that was being brought. I can't believe you did this to me and my family in a way, rather than a strict legal case. So it, it was definitely the wrong forum really for this fight, really. And yeah, I mean, and this is all summed up in the judgment really well. One of the things that jumped out at me when I read the judgment that it definitely reminded me of the Franz Kafka novel, The Trial, where the main protagonist, Joseph K., is put on trial, but he's not told what the actual crime was or anything, and by the tribunal or anything, he's just on trial for something that happened to some unknown person at an unknown time. And that kind of reminded me of this particular case, because in this case, the claimant brought a claim, and neither the defendant nor the court knew exactly why she was bringing it and what the case was, really, until things were fleshed out. And she'd never actually read the book that she was making a claim against, which is, yeah, pretty unusual, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty striking, yeah. Alad, you sort of mentioned how this is a, an unusual case in terms of the sort of fact versus fiction, as we, we call the title of this podcast episode. Have there been any other cases like it in recent time or at all? So in recent time, you have to go back to the famous Da Vinci Code case, which was heard in 2007, which was similar. In that case, the claimants had written a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which was an unusual work that the court described as a work of historical conjecture. And they claimed that Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code infringed what they called the central theme of that book. And that was a similar claim in the sense that here was a work of non-fiction and they said, you've taken the essence or the some abstracted sort of architecture from it. And that claim failed for similar reasons. 
I think I wouldn't want to say this sort of claim has never succeeded, but certainly we couldn't find a recent case in which it has succeeded. Yeah, it seems like it will be pretty challenging for all the reasons we've talked about. The fact that you can't protect the facts themselves. And of course, a historical work is essentially compiling facts. So you'd have to do something quite creative and unusual with those. And maybe it would have to be on something never researched before where there would then be a better claim. I think it really is an amazing case in all sorts of ways. I mean, that on a copyright level, there's so much in there. I mean, I would urge anybody who's interested in this area to read the judgment. It's a fairly long one. But if you want an up-to-date summary of the copyright situation in the UK, it's fantastic. And obviously the subject matter covers the geopolitics in the 1950s up until, well, up until the present day in a funny sense. Everything is there and you've got you know, a Hollywood blockbuster film from 1965 thrown in as well, Omar Sharif. And I think it's a picture of Julie Christie actually, who is the heroine in the film, Dr. She's on the cover of Anna Pasternak's book. Everything's in there as this particular case. But from a copyright perspective, it is quite intriguing that you've got historical works of fact and fictional works based on the same fact. I was quite surprised that there was actually enough there for there to be a claim. So it's really great the way Al has explained that no, copyrights can still subsist in a situation where you'd otherwise think there wouldn't be any at all. It's not that hurdle that the claimant fell down on, is it? The copyright did subsist. It was just that it wasn't then copy. Absolutely. I think we should unpack that a bit because I think that will be one of the most striking features, I think. So copyright subsistence is actually a very low hurdle to cross. And that's what the judge held. So the test we have in the UK for whether or not something attracts copyright protection is that the work has to be the author's own intellectual creation. Now, that sounds like a very high hurdle, doesn't it? You think, oh, intellectual, there must be quite a lot of work that went into that. But actually, no, the European Court of Justice, which is where this test comes from, have clarified that own intellectual creation simply means that the author had to exercise choices. And they can be fairly mundane choices, but choices they are. And if they've been exercised, then copyright can subsist. So to give you an example, in Chapter 5 of Anna's work, she claimed that seven events in order created a protectable structure. And the events start from Olga discovering she's pregnant with Boris's child. She then goes to Lubyanka, which is a sort of a detention centre and an interrogation centre. And it ends with her sentencing and being sentenced to the gulags. There are seven facts in that pattern. They are all broadly chronological in nature, although they don't record everything that happened in that time period. And the judge held that that order did attract copyright protection. Where Anna's claim fell down was that the judge didn't agree with her second part of her claim, which was that that structure had been copied by Lara. And he found that for a number of reasons. And there are 350 paragraphs of painstaking but brilliant analysis where the judge goes through every single allegation of copying. And he says, even though I do find copyright subsistence and all these events and all these structures that Anna's putting forward, none of them are copied in Lara's work. And there are lots of reasons for this. So a lot of the events and the structure of those events are chronological, or they simply are the obvious way in which to string them together for dramatic effect. Some of them, Lara had alighted on before she saw Anna's work. There was lots of disclosure in the case, and 
Lara had produced her early drafts and those evidence that a lot of the structures Lara had alighted on herself anyway. Both authors had used the same historical sources. I think this is a real headline in the case and where sometimes what can appear to be very similar structures between two books actually arise because both authors used the same books. So both authors, both Anna and Lara, had used Olga's own biography, the very romantically phrased A Captive of Time. They both used that in researching their works, and they'd also both used a seminal work called The Shivago Affair. Oh, that's brilliant. That's a fantastic book. Was that by the journalist and the former CIA officer, is that right? That's exactly right. It's a fantastic book. And if that was serialised on Radio 4 many years ago, it used to come on just after the Today programme, so I have <laughs> it stuck in my brain. And finally, another headline point in this case was that the judge held that a lot of the similarities that Anna's legal team were trying to draw attention to were actually an artefact of the legal process. So the judge called this similarity by excision. And he said, what happens is if you take one of Anna's chapters and you select from the chapter only the events that you then see in Lara's work, you create a structure that does look similar to Lara's work, but actually it doesn't represent in substance Anna's work because you've taken out so many other details in between. And he said this was an attempt to try and show similarity by excision. And that's an artificial legal exercise, and it can't prove copying. You've anticipated my question, Arlid. That wasn't the job of the lawyers, was it? They were. <laughs> it sounds very much like a legal team that's determined to bring a claim and looking for what they can find. And as, as we've already talked about, maybe there was a much more emotive personal reason for this dispute. And invariably, the High Court is not a good place to have those sorts of disputes. It's not a cheap one either. Not a cheap one either, no, but uh, did lead to a very, uh, as you say, very thorough and interesting judgment from a copyright lawyer perspective. It's a great example of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Copyright cases should only be brought where there is subsistence and where there is real evidence of copying. And where the evidence of copying is actually constructed by the lawyers to try and make the square peg fit into the round hole, it won't succeed. Yeah, that's a good summary. Simon, I think Omar Sharif, who played Dr. Zhivago in the 65 film, was famously a betting man. What odds do you think he'd have given this case? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was actually a world famous bridge player. I did not know that. And also he was quite into horse racing and other types of gambling. So, yeah, real sophisticated globetrotter as well as a famous actor and a big shot in the gambling world. I think if he had a full knowledge of the facts, and also in relation to your hypothetical question, if he had a full grasp of English copyright law, he would have thought Anna Pasternak had a very slim chance. The outcome of the case, the way it turned out with Lara Prescott succeeding, he would have thought this is basically the expected outcome based on the facts and the law as it stands today. There wouldn't have been any surprises for Omar Sharif. Things worked out the way they should have. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Thank you both, Simon and Alad, very much for your interesting insights. And clearly there are lots of things to go away and read and or listen to after this discussion, not least the judgment itself, but also some good old fashioned page turners. If you have enjoyed listening to our discussion today and would like to know more, do have a read of Simon's excellent article on our website, carmels.com. And you can also find previous episodes of the podcast there. 
And also, if you're interested in copyright issues generally, then do keep an eye and an ear out because we will pick up this subject again, I'm sure, soon in the coming months. All that remains is for me to say thank you to my guests, Simon and Alid. Thank you very much. And to you all for listening. And I look forward to welcoming you back for another episode of Cartmel's In Conversation very soon. Mm-hmm.